Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Hebrews, today chapter 12. I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, uh, there are only three sermons left in the book of Hebrews for me. Uh, There are actually more than that, but that's all I'm going to share with you. So today, uh, we'll take next week uh, to do something special. We'll say more about that later. And uh, then we'll take uh, two weeks, the last Sunday of September and the first of October, and finish the book of Hebrews. So I'm delighted uh, for those of you who are eager to move on to something else. I'm delighted for you. I'm not as delighted for me because I really like the book. Which brings me to the second thing I want to say. A little anecdote about Greg Belser. Uh, The Lord uh, brought me from uh, a life of uh, not emphasizing him in... uh, high school and early college, uh, back to him through circumstances that don't matter today. But I was about 20 years old when that happened, sophomore year of college. God got his hand on me in ways that he had not prior to that. And uh, I was beginning to fall in love with the scripture and uh, hung out with three or four guys from my little hometown that uh, fell in love with the scripture and so I remember a day we went to uh, the one bookstore religious bookstore that we knew about and uh, I bought a bible I bought a Schofield reference bible which I still have and I don't use Uh, and I bought a commentary and the commentary was Barclay's commentary on the book of Hebrews. Now, I didn't know Barclay from Belser, and if you don't know anything about commentaries, then you don't know Barclay from Belser either. But I didn't, but I, I do today, and, and I began to take that particular commentary in my brand new Schofield Reference Bible, and I began to study deeply the Word of God for the first time in my life. And Hebrews was the first book. I don't recommend that because Hebrews assumes you know a little Old Testament. And uh, I knew, you know, I knew the mountain peaks. I knew Moses was not Jonah, which is more than some of you know. But Moses is not Jonah. I knew that, but I didn't know any of the the real uh, deep things of God as regards that. But I I began to study and uh, fell in love with the Bible. The end game of that was that in a matter of months I had now then surrendered to the ministry. I was now headed for ministry instead of uh, pursuing uh, a business career that I had thought was in my future. And uh, it all started for me in the book of Hebrews. Why does that matter today? Because the very first sermon that I ever preached in Hebrews, not the first sermon ever, But probably the fourth sermon ever I ever preached in church was from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. People say all the time, you ought never to preach a sermon that you've preached before. You know, you ought to preach a different sermon. To which I say, every verse of the Bible has already been preached. So no matter what you're doing, you're covering somebody else's material. And sometimes it's even your own. 
So I'm going to tell you that I've been studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 for a long time. And I've got a lot to say in a short time to say it. So I want to unpack it. That's part of the reason why today I'm not going into a big, long section of uh, Hebrews 12 because I really think the first two verses, uh, maybe because that's the way I began to digest Hebrews 12 years ago, should be considered on their own. So we're going to look at them together. I hope you have your Bibles and you'll find them there. And I want to remind you of something as we uh, begin to read. What we have uh, seen thus far in the book of Hebrews is that Uh, if you would permit a bit of a summary theme statement. The the summary of this book is simply that Jesus is better, therefore don't fall away from Jesus. Jesus is best, therefore don't fall away from Jesus. And no matter what you might be considering in your life, no matter what other alternatives for giving your life meaning or purpose or definition or value or significance or all kinds of words that people use today. You know, my life just doesn't feel important. My life just doesn't feel valuable. I just feel like, you know, we're not going anywhere. And people will say all kinds of things, and and I'm not suggesting those are not true statements. Again, my experience with Hebrews 12 uh, more than 40 years ago grew out of a season in my own life when I felt like my life was not significant. So I, I, get, I get that. But when people talk like that, the answer the Bible gives is that the problem is that what you've been feeding your life with is, is second-class stuff. If, if you're eating bad food and you turn up sick, if you're doing bad things and you turn up in trouble, if you're doing things that are second class instead of first class, if you're not treating your life, if you're not pursuing the best, if you're not doing what is good and honorable and virtuous and true, if you're not pursuing those things and you end up in trouble, that's not surprising, is it? That's what sin does. Sin markets itself with lights and and candles, and, and, and flashing sounds, and, and says, this is fabulous. You need to come do this. And then you get in the middle of all of that, and you realize that it doesn't deliver. And in fact, it not only doesn't deliver, it drives you into sorrow. Sin is a lie. It sells itself as A, and it turns out to be nothing of the sort. So Jesus is better. So don't fall away from Jesus because the only alternative from Jesus is death and destruction and despair and depression and angst and disappointment and regret and ultimately, finally falling away from Jesus, the only answer is hell. So don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop stop hoping. Jesus is greater than this life, and Jesus is greater even than death. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't have an answer in life, and you sure don't have an answer in death. But if you do have Jesus, then your life is not only abundant, but your death turns out to be just the doorway through which you go on to your reward. 
If you have Jesus, don't fall away from Jesus. So what he's done in this book, he's done two things. He's pointed out Jesus as this great deliverer. Jesus is everything that you're looking for. And he took 10 chapters to do that. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the great sacrifice. Jesus is the the, the great deliverer. Jesus is, is all that you need. Jesus is better. And then in the 11th chapter, which we looked at for the last two weeks, he has lifted up all these witnesses. So it's Abraham, and it's Moses, and it's Enoch, and it's Abel, and it's Samson, and it's David, and so forth. He's lifted up all these witnesses, and he said, look, they agree. All of those folks, they agree Jesus is better. Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the answer. So he's not only told you that Jesus is the answer, he's lined up witnesses to testify to the same. Don't take his word for it, listen to Abraham. Don't take his word for it, listen to Moses. Don't take his word for it, listen to David. Notice in chapter 10, verse, rather chapter 11, verse 38, he said, these are men of whom the world was not worthy. In other words, these men have enormous credibility. And their common denominator, verse 39 of chapter 11, is that they were commended through their faith. Through their faith. They they received commendation from God. God approved them because of their faith. Now, I want to tell you, why is that important? Because if Abraham is commended through his faith, what is the manner in which you will be commended? If, If Abraham gets in this door... How do you think you're going to get in the opposite door? If Moses gets in this door, how do you think you're going to get in the opposite door? If David gets in this door, then how do you think you're going to get in the opposite door? I'll tell you, friend. You're not. You're not. There is only one door. Jesus tells us in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So don't fall away from Jesus because Jesus is the way. So that brings us to chapter 12. And you'll note the very first word is the conjunction. Meaning, I just listed a bunch of reasons for why you should do what you do, believe what you believe, feel what you feel, respond like you respond. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I really like the way the King James describes that. The sin which so easily besets us. I like it because remember the first time I ever preached this passage, I was preaching the Schofield Reference Bible, which only comes in King James. And so that's the way I learned that passage. The sin which so easily besets us. I have much to say about that momentarily. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I just want to show you a couple of things, literally two things. I want you to know, first of all, what he is encouraging us to do. He uh, is coming to exhortation because that's what a conjunction does. When you, when you see a sentence that begins with therefore, he's about to make application or he's about to offer some exhortation. Therefore, get with it. Therefore, stop doing that. Therefore, change the way you're doing. Therefore, 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 therefore. Anytime you use a conjunction like that, you're about to make an application or you're about to bring some sort of exhortation. That's what he's doing here. And you'll note the exhortation is right there in verse 1. Run with endurance the race set before us. What does he want you to do? He wants you to run with endurance. It turns out that life is akin to a race. You'll remember that Paul says in 2 Timothy, the last of his 13 letters, he is near death, and he says in 2 Timothy very famous words often quoted at funerals. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course or the race. I have kept the faith. The point is that Paul likens, compares, if you will, life to a race. Does that again and again. Now the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. That's one of the ways that people come up with a theory that maybe Hebrews was authored by Paul because they used similar metaphors. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But I will say this. This is a vivid metaphor for our lives. What does he want us to do? He wants to run with endurance. Now, I've often told the story. I was, uh, when I was in junior high, I was a distance runner. I outgrew my skills, though. In junior high, I was in track, and when I got to high school, they said, don't bother. Uh, so I'm not, I don't have a track body. I know a couple of guys who do, uh, and I know that these, uh, if you, if those of us who don't have track bodies, we look at track bodies, and we say, that's amazing. That's amazing. When did you stop eating? <laughs> uh, have you ever noticed in the Olympics that the guys who are running the, the, the distance runs, you know, the marathons and the 1500s and the whatever, three miles and five miles and six kilometers or whatever they're running, uh, they, they all have like 1% body fat. I mean, they're just bones and not much muscle because they're about to run like from here to Vicksburg and supposed to like it, you know, enjoy it. Somehow this is all good. I always remind people that the guy that, the first guy that ran a marathon died. I mean, he literally gave his message and died. It really doesn't bode well for people to run 26 miles, but they keep doing it. I'm running with endurance. I hope to not run 26 miles, but I hope to run 70 or 80 or by grace even more years for the glory of God. I hope to run with endurance this race. And in order to do that, I got to get into shape because there's going to be, to use running terms, there's going to be a wall or two that you have to run through. 
There are going to be some days, maybe some weeks, maybe even some seasons in your life when it's going to get tough. When, when what you believe gets tested, what you hope for gets tested, what you thought it was going to be like gets tested. You know, that's what pastors do. We help people manage disappointments. That's, that's a lot of what I do. You know, I expected marriage to be better, different, and it's not. And now we're arguing and fussing and fighting, and we're here to get your help. I help people manage disappointment. Or I thought, you know, I was going to go over here and I was going to do this and this and this, all these being categories of sinfulness. I thought I could just do this and this and this and this, and now my life is a wreck. I'm disappointed that my life is a wreck. I want you as my pastor to help me. I'm delighted to do that, by the way. I am. Because that's what we do. We help people manage the walls that the race of life runs them into. The writer of Hebrews says the first thing you need to do, the what you need to do, is to run with endurance. You need to cinch up. You need to tighten up. And you need to realize that this is not a sprint. It's not. Our uh, children have all raised. We have three daughters and three sets of grandchildren, so nine grandchildren. And they all parented them through the season when all of them were preschoolers at the same time. Our youngest daughter is still in the midst of that. And uh, I don't remember it being such a terrible thing when we were there, but it's been challenging at times for our girls. I love our girls. Thank God for them. Love our grandchildren. But they have the sin of their fathers and grandfathers at war in their flesh, just like you do in yours. And they can be trying. And when they're all trying at the same time, when you're the parent of a bunch of littles, as they say, it's, it's challenging. It's overwhelming. And I get it. But it's just a season. You wish you could fast forward and say, just hang on. You know, if you, if you could just like chill out for three years, this is all going to be fine. If you could just wait and, and maybe not build a concrete statue to your life right here that we can't bust up. Just, just hang on. Just keep going. Do the right thing. Be faithful. Do the right thing. Well, that's, that's good medicine for virtually all of us. We're all at some stage. None of us are at the same stage, but we're all at some stage. And we need to get over ourselves. We need to understand that God has called us to live our lives and that this stage is actually a part of the plan of God. It may not be what you expected. It may not be what you would even order. And yet it is where you are. Now, you're either going to approach it with faith and approach it with gratitude and approach it with contentment, biblical virtues, or you're going to kick against the goads, to use a good King James term. You're going to kick against the way God has wired you and wired your life and brought these circumstances into your life. What is God up to? Well, nobody really knows. 
I've seen many jokes about pastors who in 2019 supposedly got away with God and got a vision for 2020. About six weeks ago, I heard a guy say, I guess all those guys who got their vision for 2020 are really crying the blues these days. Because 2020 hasn't worked out like anybody thought it would. Least of all preachers. If you'd have told me in 2019 that we were going to go weeks and weeks and weeks and none of you would be here, weeks, I wouldn't have believed it. Who would? I don't know what God's up to. Well, I do know in micro, micro pieces. I don't know the macro. And neither does anybody else. I know the micro. We'll say more about that another day. But I do know this, that God wants me to run nonetheless. My job day after day, your job day after day is to run. What do you do? You get up and you run. That's what you do. You get up and you go. You get up and you serve. You get up and you live. That's what you do day after day after day after day after day after day after day. You say, well, I don't like my life. Well, I'm guessing when Daniel got thrown in the lion's den, he didn't like that. I'm guessing when David was hiding from Saul in a cave, he didn't like that. I'm guessing when Samuel was getting his eyes gouged out, he didn't like that. I'm guessing when Rahab saw the Israelites coming and the walls falling down around her in Jericho, she didn't like that. I'm guessing that faithful people who live before us didn't like much of their circumstances either. But I want to caution you, friend. It's not a Christian virtue to be a murmurer. It's not a Christian virtue to be a whiner. It's not a Christian virtue to be a grumbler. It's a Christian virtue to look to God. That's what it is. We got to look to God. We got to hope in God. We got to trust in God. We got to cling to God. Hold on to God. Hold on to God. Hold on to God. If we don't hold on to God, then I'll tell you. We're holding on to sinking sand. Run the race with endurance. The King James here says the word patience. We get the picture. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Never has been a sprint. We've just been duped into believing it is. So that's the what. Run with endurance, the race. But then he answers the question how. And this is where I would love to spend weeks talking, but uh, we'll just be a moment or two. Notice, first of all, he says in verse 1, lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. Again, follow through with that running analogy. The word weight here is just the, the general word for bulk or mass. So bulk or mass. How good is it for a runner to be bulky? Man, I, I really admire the way you run. You run so bulky. Man, you're, you're fabulous. You're, you, the way you carry your mass, it, that's not the kind of conversations people have with runners. People who are runners have laid aside weight. They've, they've lost weight on purpose. It, this connotes deliberate intention, training, discipline yourself, lay aside the weight. 
Lose some weight. Find ways to slim down so you can run. How do we get in trouble with our faith? Because we pack on things that don't help us run with endurance. We pack on stuff. We allow things into our lives. We listen to voices. We listen to people. We listen to circumstances. We listen to media. We, we, we hear things, and we filter all these things. We begin to accumulate these things, and we begin to identify with these things, and we begin to act on these things and think the way these people are thinking. We ignore the Word of God, but we know plenty about any number of other cultural things. College football has started. I suspect that many of us, about halfway through the season, will be able to talk about all kinds of wonderful things. By the way, I'm a fan. I will join with you. But I assure you, friend, there's nothing in football that's as important as this. There's nothing in anything else in this life that's as important as this. I would just caution you. Lay aside your bulk. Lay aside the mass that keeps you from running. Whatever it may be. There's some things in your life that need to go. And they become the soil for sin. They may not be sinful, but they become the soil for sin. Why do these things happen in your life? Well, maybe it's because you're listening to this, or you're participating in that, or you're giving an ear to that, or you know more about this than you ought to know. Because this is the soil from which all of this other chaos in your life has grown. This is the season for candy corn. Do you know how much I love candy corn? Mary can tell you. I love candy corn. I am not asking you to bring me candy corn. Do not do that. I have no capacity to fight candy corn. There is nothing sinful about candy corn. But there are things in candy corn that are not good for me. Please don't bring me any candy corn. But I want candy corn. (laughs) I want it. Some of you say that's the nastiest stuff. It's just pure sugar. Isn't it good? Oh. (laughs) You need to get rid of some stuff. Because it leads you where you don't need to be. Lay aside every every weight. There's a second thing he tells us to do. Lay aside the sin which clings so closely. King James here has the word besetting sin. The sin that besets. Besets. For those of you who read that in the King James, you don't even know what the word besets means, but it really means to surround. It means the sin that surrounds you or the sin that clings so closely. Now, for a runner, the sin that clings so closely is typically your your middle, right? Your spare tire. That's why runners don't have spare tires. They just, you know, if they have a flat, they're done. That's just the way it is. They don't take along any excess baggage. It's the sin which clings so closely. Besetting sins typically are identified by most people in popular culture as as things that you just have been struggling with all your life. So for for one, it's it's lust or pornography. For another, it's materialism or the worldly pressures and circumstances. 
And on and on we could go. There are these sins that you, you can't get rid of. For the alcoholic, it's alcohol. For the drug addict, it's drugs. These are besetting sins, sins that you just can't get rid of. You've been fighting and fighting. Or for others, it's covetousness. Or for others, it's just gossip. Or others, it's just you know, self-aggrandizement. You know, I just have always struggled with insecurity. And I just have to always have people telling me how wonderful I am because I'm so weak. It's just this besetting sin. I just can't, I can't deal with it. I don't know how to get rid of it. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say the mechanics here of how to get rid of it. It just says get rid of it. It just says, run with endurance and lay it aside. The verb translate lay aside is akin to Paul's term in Philippians where, and in Colossians where he says to put off and put on. Put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the work of the Spirit. That's Paul's verbiage in Philippians and in Colossians. Here, the writer of Hebrews says, lay it aside. Put it off, lay it aside. Get rid of it. Fight. In other words, how do you get rid of it? You, you double down. You go for it. How do you lose weight if you want to lose weight? You go for it. How do you get in shape? You go for it. How, how do any of these things happen? How do you run and run and run and run and run and run? You don't quit. Invariably, I'm talking to young pastors, and I delight in doing so. But my caution to them, and they're dealing with people and circumstances and situations, and, and I'm delighted to encourage them. The, the first lesson, I tell them this all the time, the first job is don't quit. Don't quit. Because if you quit, it says a lot that you don't want to say. It communicates things that you don't want to communicate. And number two, it ruins your life. Don't quit. Hang in there. Hang in there. God's at work in ways you don't know. He's a mysterious God with a mysterious hand. He's doing things that you can't see. You don't have any idea what he's doing. Don't quit. So I'm going to say that to you, friend. You're in the midst of something and you're considering whether or not faith works, whether or not God is great, whether or not Jesus loves you, whether or not the Holy Spirit even knows your address. You're considering all of these things, and you're asking yourself, is purity right? Is holiness right? Is righteousness right? Is faithfulness right? Should I hold my tongue? Should I turn the other cheek? Should I go the extra mile? Should I give a little more money? Should I be more fruitful in this way or that way or this way? How should I live my life? This is a question we're all asking. And the answer to that is, of course you should, because Jesus is better. He's better than all the rest of those lies that tell you he's not better. Jesus is the answer. Do what Jesus would have you do and don't compromise. Don't quit and don't second guess what God has told you to do. Just be obedient. Do what you've been trained to do. Lay aside the sin which clings so closely. There's much to be said there. There's a third aspect of this how question. He says it there in verse 2. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus. 
Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one. He describes him here in verse 2. For the joy set before him endured. For the joy set before him endured. Despising the shame. For the joy set before him endured. You know, we all make sacrifices on the basis of a preferred reward. We all do these things, right? It's the way we live our lives. I'm going I'm to pass on the ham because there's fried chicken right next to it. This is not the recipe, by the way, for laying aside the sin which so easily besets you. But I'm going to pass on the hams because there's fried chicken. I make calculations based on the reward, perceived reward, right? So I'm going to forego the ham and have the fried chicken. We make these kind of decisions all day, every day, in all our lives. Not just food decisions. That's a silly illustration to make the point. But we make calculations all the time. I'm going to spend my money here, not there. I'm going to make this statement instead of holding my tongue. I'm going to feel this way rather than not feel this way. I'm going to invest in the things that are eternal or not invest in the things that are eternal. And on and on we could go. How, wh- what are we doing? We're making calculations and we're making choices based on perceived reward. That's what we're doing. It's the same thing Jesus did. That's what humans do. That's what creation does. So look to Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who is the ground or the founder. He's the foundation of your faith. And he's the perfecter or finisher of your faith. In other words, Jesus started this in you. And Jesus is the one who's going to finish this in you. So in between, you get to make choices. You get to make decisions based on how you're living your life and judgments you're making based on what you think is the reward. So if you'll settle, if you'll lift your eyes below Jesus, like Peter walking on the water, the, one, the minute you start looking at the wind and the waves, you begin to sink. But if you'll look to Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of your faith, then you will note that what Jesus did is he saw the joy of being with the Father, of serving the Father, of following the Father, of obeying the Father. Jesus heard the voice of his Father. He knows the intent of the Father, and he did what the Father wanted him to do. I don't know how your family dynamics work. Maybe you have a poor relationship with your father, did have one perhaps. But let me ask you a question. Hypothetically, what would be the power in your life if you had a father you greatly respected? And let's say you had a grandfather that you greatly respected. Let's assume for the sake of this illustration, they are both deceased. And we could bring them back and we can line them up in front of you. There's your father. There's your, fa- your grandfather. There's, let's just say, his father, your great-grandfather. And maybe even one more, four men, your great-great-grandfather. Four generations of men that, as far as you know, were good men. They bear your name, they bear your DNA, and they finished well. They're good men. And what would happen if that foursome came together in your life and they began to look at your life and they said, son, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson, this is who we want you to be. We want you to 
Do A and B and C and D. Give, give these things. Give virtue to these things. Pay attention to these things. Don't get caught up in these things. If you heard from these significant people in your life, the very men who gave you life, that, that would be a, that'd be a heavy thing, number one. That'd be, a, that'd be a real weight on your life. And secondly, that would give you some real direction. Because these are men who not only have gone before you, but they, they are you, right? I mean, they, they, they have you in mind. They, they're a part of you. You're a part of them. If you could line my generations up, I couldn't say they were all stellar men, but I could imagine if they were, the pressure that that would bring in my life. Well, that's what he's done here. He's, he's lined up some, some giants. The first giant is Jesus. Then there's a bunch of little giants like Abraham and Moses and David and Samson and others. Little people compared to Jesus. But in the end, he circles back. We have all these witnesses. Great. But the greatest witness is Jesus. You know who you need to be living like? Not Abraham. Abraham's a mighty flawed man. Not David. David's a flawed man. No, no, you you need to live like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the author of your faith. And Jesus is the finisher of your faith. Jesus is the source of your faith. Jesus is the ground of your faith. Jesus is the foundation of your faith. And he's the perfecter of your faith. He's the completer of your faith. He's the finisher of your faith. He is the object of your faith. Don't believe in Abraham. Believe in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you'll get rid of these sins because you'll fight these sins with Jesus. Jesus is the superior reward to giving in or compromising or giving attention to these things that are destructive, that have brought the sorrow or brought the pain or brought the discomfort in your life. Look to Jesus. He's a better example. By the way, if you look to Abraham, you'll note that Abraham looked to Jesus. If you look to Moses, you'll note that Moses looked to Jesus. You say, where does the Bible say that Moses looked to Jesus? Well, Hebrews. Hebrews 11. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, Moses. So, what should we do? We should look to God. We should lay aside the sin which so easily besets us, and so which easily drags us down in the pit. We should get rid of the junk in our lives that gives soil for the weeds that can grow. Cut it out. Cut it off. Give it up. Just say no. Look to Jesus. One of the things that so impresses me of Jesus, I say this in close, is Jesus was a a true minimalist. You remember Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not suggesting that you have nowhere to lay your head because what's going to happen is you're going to come to the church and need a place to stay. Take care, of your, take care of your bed first. 
But Jesus is a true minimalist. He just didn't get caught up in what the world had. Well, we're to be in the world, but not of it. Somehow that's a tension that we never quite master. How much, how much, how much, how little, how little, how little. I don't know. I'll tell you, I, I, don't, I don't have a master on that in my own life, and I sure can't help you with that in yours in any great detail. But I will tell you, friend, it's worth the fight. It's worth the fight to try to get in better shape. Spiritually. It's worth the fight to get rid of some things. To stop. To lay it aside. To put it off. It's worth the fight. I predict you'll feel better. I predict you'll be more satisfied. I predict you'll experience more joy. And I expect... I expect that people will notice a change. You're not as, and you can fill in the blank with all kinds of evils. But you're more, and you can fill in the blank with all kinds of positives. Why? Because you just got rid of some stuff. And you just decided that Jesus was better. I just need to get to hang out with Jesus. (laughs) I started this by telling a story. I reflect on this often. When I was 20 years old, I bought my first Bible, my first commentary. I didn't study the Bible because I had a program. I didn't study the Bible because I was in a group. I didn't study the Bible because there was some program at church or even some advocate at church. I studied the Bible because I really, 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 really wanted to know Jesus. And if there is anything we've learned during the pandemic, it is that maybe for some of us, we haven't spent enough time with Jesus. And God has given us an awful lot of time. So I hope you've made good use of that time. And if not, I hope you will. Look into Jesus. Get to know him. Because for him, even standing before Pilate and being mocked, and whipped and humiliated and even hanging on a cross naked or virtually naked for all the world to see and people mocking and spitting even that did not deter him from the race so don't let the world tell you that Jesus is not worth it. It turns out that there's a reward that Jesus knew about. It says so right here, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus saw a reward. He 
knew about a reward that we don't know about. But he says, follow me. Follow me. Go where I'm going. Come join me. So I urge you today, lay some stuff aside and make room for the greatest relationship you'll ever know. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's our great joy and affection to call you Father. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your blessings. Strengthen us today. Help us to see Jesus, to see him clearly. How we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.